Well, today we're going to be spending time uh, together in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 15. And thank you to Grant for reading for us. Uh, We're going to read just a little bit more uh, here in just a little bit. Uh, But as you get your Bibles and you turn there, I want to begin with a little story. Uh, Two times this year, my wife and family and I have done something uh, that's it's a really important human ritual and probably something that you have done in the course of your life and maybe more over the last year and a half or so. Uh, we have buried two of our loved ones. Uh, one of them was Cynthia's uncle, uh, someone that she lived with for a few years after uh, she finished school and before we got married and who has been important in our lives ever since. Uh, the other was my aunt, who uh, I spent a lot of time with growing up Uh, at different family functions. Cynthia's uncle uh, was one of those stories that you hear about over the last 18 months. He contracted COVID and was one of the unlucky ones. Um, Having trouble breathing led to a hospital visit, which led to a hospital stay, which led to intubation in the ICU, and he never recovered. Uh, My aunt was one who developed Alzheimer's disease in her older years, and, uh, and she was in a really bad way for the last few years. And so for her, death was to some degree a relief and a blessing. With him, it was a great surprise and sadness. But we were really grateful that in both cases, uh, the family mostly lived in Texas, and so we were all able to gather together uh, to do that thing that humans do, to bury the ones that we love. Uh, And as many of you likely know, there's just not really anything quite like seeing a body in a coffin. Right? As Christians, we know that this is not the end of the story, right? that there is more coming, but at the same time, we're in that in-between this life and the next life. And while that knowledge comforts us, it doesn't take the sting away, it doesn't take the pain away, and it doesn't bring that person back. So in those moments, I think we appreciate the words that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he tells the church, he doesn't want them to grieve like those that have no hope. Right? You remember that line? He doesn't say don't grieve. He just says that being a Christian affects the way that we grieve. Well, that brings us to our story in Mark chapter 15. We encounter people who are burying one of their loved ones, in this case, Jesus. We already heard some of the ones who were there. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Salome. And we hear that they had been with Jesus. They had cared for his needs in Galilee, maybe like the ones that are mentioned in Luke that that spent from their own finances to support Jesus' ministry. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 42. It says it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summing the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, many of us have been taught when we read a passage out of the Bible, right? one of the things that we want to do is try to pay attention to what God is doing or to what Jesus is doing in the story, because a lot of times that helps us understand what we're supposed to get out of it, right? 
That's especially true in the Gospels, when basically in almost every story, except this one and maybe when Jesus was a baby, we can look at what Jesus did, what he said, how he reacted to people, how he was feeling. But the problem is, we can't do that here because Jesus is just dead. Right? It's not, it's not Easter Sunday yet, and we've just had the crucifixion. But what we can do in this case is look at the other people in the story. We can look at what they do and see what we can learn and take. So let's talk first about the women. They show up first in the story. When I hear this, I find myself wondering what they were thinking and feeling. You know, were they in a similar place to the, the kinds of feelings that we have when we go to funerals? Right? Was there that sadness and hope kind of mixed together? Was it anger at the Romans or the Jewish leaders? Was it just despair, maybe? Maybe they were like those disciples that Luke tells us about on the road to Emmaus, the ones that said, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We'll go back to that little detail that Grant read for us, that they had been with Jesus in his ministry in Galilee. That means they'd been with him for a while. Right? They weren't Johnny-come-latelys. They weren't bandwagon fans. They weren't the ones who don't really care about football until the Cowboys have a good season and then they get on board. I wonder if in that time in Galilee they had heard him say the things that he said to his disciples, that the Son of Man is going to be handed over and he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be killed, and he's going to be raised on the third day. And so maybe they're there wondering if that resurrection's about to happen. Well, third day, we don't really know exactly what that means. Or maybe they were just looking to see where it was buried, right? Because it says it was the day before the Sabbath, and it was the late afternoon. So they couldn't, they couldn't come back the next day to take care of the body. So maybe it was, let's make sure we know where he is so we can come back on Sunday to do the ointments and the spices, which is, of course, exactly what they do in the next chapter. Do you ever notice how many people in the Bible get buried? You can get online and search for these kinds of things, which I did. And I remembered a bunch, and there were even more than I remembered. And, and the people that get named as being buried are some of the most famous people in the Bible. Sarah, Abraham, Rachel, and Isaac, and Leah, and Jacob, and Joseph, and some people that die in the desert, and Aaron, and Moses, and Joshua, and Eleazar, and Gideon, and Jephthah, and Samson, and Samuel, and Saul, and Jonathan, and David, and Solomon, and Elisha, and a whole bunch of the kings of Israel and Judah. I don't know if anybody else is a Lord of the Rings fan. I was very excited when I discovered, I'd never noticed this detail before, in the books of Chronicles, it talks about burying the kings in the tombs of the kings of Israel, sort of like in Minas Tirith, right? The tombs of the kings. Very, very nice. Okay. And did you know that even executed criminals are supposed to be buried. It says it in Deuteronomy 21 in the law. And that's exactly what Jesus is. Right? In the eyes of the law, he is an executed criminal. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't get buried. This is standard practice for the Jewish faith. And then that makes me wonder, well, why is he telling us about it? Right? I mean, most of the Gospels consist of the teaching of Jesus and the powerful deeds of Jesus, right? This is neither one, at least obviously. So why spend time telling us? I mean, maybe it's just the natural bridge to what comes next. We're going to have a chapter 16 where the women go to the tomb, so we need to get him buried. If he's going to raise from the dead, we've got to get him in the tomb first. Um, maybe it's like what we read about in Matthew's gospel, where the Jewish leaders are worried that the disciples are going to come steal the body. 
And so this rumor is going around that they did that. And so maybe Mark wants to make sure that we know. No, no, no. He was buried. There was a stone. Like this was a done deal. Another thing that we know is that by just a few decades after the death of Jesus, there were people who were saying, you know, we believe in God. And we know that Jesus was an amazing guy. But God, God is spirit, right? I mean, gods don't have bodies. Maybe, maybe that's how the whole death and resurrection thing were. Maybe Jesus was kind of like a divine ghost or phantasm or something. And so when he died, he, he didn't really die, right? They were, they were letting what they believed about God affect the way that they understood Jesus. And so maybe Mark is saying, no, 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 I'm telling you, he was dead, dead. You're a princess bride person, right? He wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. We're not going to go through his pockets looking for loose change. Um, he really was dead. He was as vulnerable as you can be because his body needed to be taken care of. And so the women are there watching, watching what happens. If I had to guess, knowing the things that we know about the culture that they lived in, I'm guessing that those women felt pretty helpless. And it was a patriarchal world. Women didn't have a whole lot of roles and rights, especially in a public way. I wonder if they were there because there really wasn't much else for them to do. And that makes me think about some of the last times I felt helpless. What are some things that come to mind for you when you have felt helpless? Um, maybe, maybe for you it was a car wreck. Either it was about to happen to you or to somebody else, and you saw it happening. And it's that deal where it's going in slow motion. Or maybe there was a big family fight that was happening again. Maybe there was a social media interaction or a text thread that was getting out of hand. Uh, maybe for uh, the teenagers in the house, there was a fight at school, and, and like you saw it down the hall, or maybe your friends were involved, or maybe you have a family member who is ill or in declining health. And in these kind of situations, we have those helpless feelings like, I, I, I don't even, I don't know what I can do. I don't know how I can change this. You know those kind of deals? And I think we react lots of different ways, but I think there's two big ones. Sometimes we're paralyzed. Sometimes we get motivated to action. What does that paralysis look like? Well, we just kind of freeze in the car wreck and wait for whatever to happen. We just let the family fight blow over and pick up the pieces later. We just step back from the social media argument and see what's going to happen. And of course, sometimes doing nothing in a time of helplessness is exactly the right thing, right? Sometimes we need to do nothing. Sometimes doing nothing is a way that we protect ourselves when there's harm or trauma. But other times, we find ourselves being motivated to action. I want to tell you a story from Scripture about both of these sides. Uh, they both have to do with King David, one of the great kings of Israel, and who I was named after, so I always kind of felt an affinity for him. Um, some of you may remember the story of David and his son named Amnon. Uh, David, you may remember, had lots of kids, had lots of wives, and so there were half-siblings going on. And, and as a result, there, were, there was kind of a blended family situation, and sometimes you had some family dysfunction. And there was one terrible day where one of David's sons named Amnon hurt his half-sister in a terrible, awful way. So much so that that sister's brother, so Amnon's half-brother, was so mad that he wanted to kill him. Well, dad heard about it. And with their sibling conflict and mom or dad hears about it, there's often an expectation for action, right? The problem was David had hurt someone in his life in a way very similar to what his son had done. And so the text tells us that he was angry, but he didn't do anything else. He 
didn't correct his child. Well, Amnon's half-brother did get his revenge, killed his half-brother. What happened next resulted in a rebellion that nearly destroyed the country, and then the one that took revenge got revenge taken on him by one of David's commanders. And we can't necessarily say if David had only done this, all that bloodshed could have been avoided, but it's kind of hard not to wonder. Let me tell you another story about David. He's not the hero here. Uh, before he became king, there was a time, this is in 1 Samuel 25, when he was living out in the wilderness with a bunch of his followers. They were on the run from Saul, the king who was trying to kill him. Uh, and, and for a while, they were living near this, uh, this ranch owner, to use some Kerrville area appropriate language, right? This guy didn't have longhorn cattle, uh, but he had sheep, he had goats, uh, and they had sort of lived in the area and seemed to have kind of lived in a good relationship with uh, the sheep herders and the goat herders. They had not harmed them. They hadn't stolen any of the animals. And so when it came, came time to shear the sheep, there would be a big feast because they would get to sell all the wool and make the money and everything. And so David, his, he and his guys are living out in the wilderness. They go and they say, hey, we've been sort of protecting you guys. Could we participate in the feast? I mean, we're hungry. And the owner, ranch owner, rebukes David, makes fun of him, and rejects him entirely. And David reacts the way some of us do. Well, he gets his blood pumping, and he says, we are going down there, and we are going to take care of business, and this guy is going to regret how he has treated us. Well, the ranch owner's name was Fool in Hebrew, because he was one. But his wife was named Abigail. I don't know if there's any Abigails in here, but we name our children after Abigail, not after her husband, because she was a wise woman. She heard what was going on, and she might have felt very, very helpless, but instead, she got help. She gathered up stuff that they had in storage. She went out to David. She bowed down before him. She apologized. She gave reverence that was due to him and said, please have mercy. You know what David did? He recognized the wisdom of Abigail. And he changed what he was doing. He had reacted out of anger to her foolish husband, and he reacted in wisdom to her. He changed what he was doing. Sometimes, when there's a situation where we might be feeling helpless, we do take action. In that fight at school, we might try to step in and separate our friends, knowing that maybe the school rules are that we might get in trouble too if they think we're part of the fight, but we need, we need to do something. Maybe we try to change something in the big picture, whether it's the traffic situation so that the car wrecks don't happen, right? or maybe at a local political level to change so that there's no more exploitation, whatever it is that's going on. And this takes us back to our story for today. The first characters we hear about are the women who are watching, and they're waiting. But then we hear about another guy. We hear a little bit about Pontius Pilate. He's surprised that Jesus is dead. We hear about the centurion who says, yep, he's dead. But then the story turns to this guy named Joseph, and he is truly a minor character. If this were the Oscars, he would not even win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar because he's just like a bit part. And all we know about him is where he's from. He's from this town called Arimathea, and he serves on the council. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 15, that council had just condemned Jesus to death. He's a respected member of the council. We don't know if he's a Pharisee or a Sadducee or neither. Uh, Those groups of people interact with Jesus, but usually it's just kind of as a group, or maybe it'll say one of the Pharisees. It It doesn't name them. But here comes Joseph, 
And it says that he went boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. I don't know why that was bold. Um, We know that when somebody was executed, especially for treason, um, the government did not have to give the body to the family. They could just say, nope, sorry, mass grave. Maybe that was why it was bold. Uh, Maybe it was because normally the government would give dead bodies over, but it was usually to a family member, and this guy's not a family member. Maybe it's because he was part of that council. You read through Mark's gospel, it does not seem like it was a great idea for any of the Pharisees or Sadducees to show some sympathy for Jesus, right? Mark really paints it as like there's this conflict. Maybe that's why he's bold. So even though we don't know why he did what he did, we do know what he did. He did that same thing that we do. He took care of a dead body because the dead body needed it. Now, some of you are reading closely, and you're saying to me, David, you left something out. We do know something else about Joseph. We know that he's from Arimathea, that he's a respected member of the council, but you left out a detail, and that's right. Look at verse 43. In the NIV, it says, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, and different translations translate that different way. Watching, looking expectantly. The word means like somebody that's got their eyes open, right? And they're ready. They're looking for what may come. And he wasn't just watching, he was watching for the kingdom. And I think this makes him very much part of the Gospel of Mark. If you spend some time reading that Gospel, you notice a couple of things. First, Mark has been talking about the kingdom of God from the very beginning. In fact, the very first thing Jesus says in Mark is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. All the way through until one of the last things he says At the Last Supper, to his disciples, I won't drink wine ever again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So this guy Joseph, he's watching for exactly what Jesus is bringing. Another thing that you see in Mark's gospel is that the idea of watching, looking, seeing is a theme that goes all the way through. Sometimes it's negative when Jesus points out things that people don't see. In the parable of the sower, he quotes that verse from Isaiah 6, about people who always see but never understand. And in Mark 8, he asked the disciples if they, has, if they have eyes but fail to see. Because we know it's not enough to have eyes. right? you got to use them. All right, kids in the room, how many of you, do your parents, ever ask you to clean your room? Does, it, does this happen in your life? Okay. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this part, but I'm guessing that sometimes you do your absolute best cleaning your room, but you still leave some toys on the floor. And your parent comes in, and they, some, of you, some of you are like, I, yep, that's me. And your parent comes in, and they say, why didn't you pick up all your stuff? And what do you say? I didn't see it. Right? I was looking, and I just didn't see it. Okay, teenagers in the room, maybe it's not toys for you. Maybe it's laundry on the floor. Parent says, we're doing the laundry. Got to gather everything up. And you gather all the stuff up, and then they come, and they look under, and then there's clothes. And they say, why didn't you pick up all your stuff? And you really didn't see it, right? You tried. And something, it's not enough to have eyes, right? we got to use them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what what does Jesus say to Peter, James, and John? They failed to keep watch with him. On the positive side, though, Mark tells us there are things we can do with our eyes. When Jesus meets the rich young man, It says he looked at him and loved him. 
Sometimes when we see people, we can be filled with compassion and love for them. Or in chapter 13, Mark 13 is a weird chapter. Jesus is talking about all these things that are going to happen at the end of the age. Listen to what he says at the end of that chapter. About that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So beware, keep alert. You don't know when the time will come. It's like a person going on a journey. When they leave home, they put their slaves in charge, each with their work, and they command the doorkeeper to be on the watch. So keep awake. You don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. What I say to you, his disciples, I say to all, be on the watch. In other words, have your eyes open. So we've got the women who are waiting. We have Joseph who is watching. At the beginning of the sermon, it said, and when we come to the Bible, we, we always want to try to hear what God is saying to us. And this story isn't one where Jesus himself speaks. What we, all, we believe that God's word always speaks, right? So what might God be saying to us today? Let me, let me propose two things. One, more individual, and one for you as a church. Uh, for us as individuals, uh, it may be that Mark is showing us an example to imitate. Right? You read through the gospel, and the, the disciples of Jesus just struggle to understand the things that he's saying. But then you get these little minor characters that kind of pop up and they show you what faith looks like. Whether it's Jairus who comes to Jesus to ask him to heal his daughter, or the woman who says, all I got to do is touch his cloak and I'll be healed. The Syrophoenician woman who goes beyond all the bounds of decorum and politeness to be in contact with Jesus. And Bartimaeus, the blind guy who doesn't let the people shush him up, but instead keeps calling out. You got the four guys who literally tear open someone's roof to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. So what example do we have at the tomb? Well, we have women who, unlike the other disciples, don't abandon Jesus. And in Joseph, we have a man who is watching for the kingdom, waiting expectantly, and he takes action that is right and faithful. So I think it's a question that we can ask ourselves. Are there places in our lives where we might be tempted to abandon Jesus? to walk away, or just to stay silent. Maybe it's in a workplace or a school. Maybe it's in a home or neighborhood or the community. Maybe the women are telling us, stick with Jesus, stay close by, even when it's hard. Or maybe the example for you is Joseph, that you need to take faithful actions somewhere in your life. Maybe you know what it is that you need to do, but you just haven't quite had the guts to do it yet. Maybe the story of Joseph is saying, Go boldly, not to Pilate, but to your coworker, to your spouse, to your neighbor, to your child, to your friend, and do that right thing that needs to be done. Here's a second possibility. Um, I don't really know y'all as a church, so I'm going to go boldly for a minute. Um, but, I, but I have been in churches where we've been in between ministers before. Uh, and I know that sometimes that can be hard, especially, I mean, my understanding has been since January, and there was like a near hire and it didn't work out, and that's just a tough deal sometimes. Um, y'all had somebody that you knew and loved, and now you have just Yahoo's showing up on a Sunday to preach, and you don't know me. I mean, sometimes in a time like that, I think the temptation to, can be to withdraw a little bit. I'll wait till they get somebody hired, and then I'll really invest or reinvest. Uh, maybe you're involved in a ministry. The prior preacher was a real encouragement for, and now he's gone. 
And, and you're trying to find that motivation to, to keep the fire going, to keep that energy there when it's not the same. Maybe you just flat out loved his preaching. And so coming to church on Sunday is hard. And you think, maybe COVID, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a break and I'll come back when it's all settled. If that's the case, then maybe the word today is that in Christ, waiting isn't something we do passively. I mean, because we're all in an in-between time. Jesus has come and is going to come again. He rose and ascended and is going to come back, but we're, we're living in the in-between. So in some ways, I think we already know what it's like to live in the interim. And what does it mean? That we watch and we wait and we try to be faithful in our actions in the meantime. We're going to be like the women. Sometimes we take it easy, but we're ready to go to the tomb on Sunday morning. Sometimes we're like Joseph, ready to take action right now. But we're waiting expectantly to see where God's kingdom is going to break out. Pray together. God, you are good and your mercies endure forever. Lord, I am so thankful for this church and the work that they have done and are doing. And I pray for their process as they look to find a new minister. But I pray today for them and for all of us that you would give us eyes to see where you are working and what you are doing. Help us to have the boldness that we see in Joseph, the willingness to act that we see in those people all through Mark's gospel to come to Jesus and ask for what we need, and also the willingness to wait like the women today when we need to. When we love you, we look forward to your return, and in the meantime, we pray you would help us to be faithful followers. In his name we pray. Amen.